Welcome to our Pathfinders podcast series, where we'll be exploring the fast-moving world of biotechnology and what the road ahead looks like for companies and investors in the sector. I'm Noel Brown, Managing Director, Biotechnology Investment Banking here at RBC. I'm here with my colleagues, Tim Papp, Managing Director, Healthcare Investment Banking, also a biotech specialist, and Jason Levitz, Head of Healthcare Equity Capital Markets. For part two of our episode on biotech IPOs, we'll be taking a look at some of the new potholes to avoid on the road to going public. Tim? Maybe you could start and just share some of your views on the topic. Yeah, well, the last eight months or so would, would maybe indicate that there aren't a lot of pitfalls and potholes, but I think that's more of a short-term um, phenomenon than, than something that companies can can really hang their hat on longer term. So, um, you know, what have we seen be, be issues in the past? Well, I think one one big one is is valuations getting ahead of themselves on the private rounds um, and and then you know really having to to struggle to continue to have step up from round to round and in particular we get from crossover to IPO in 2020 yeah, the, the average median step up has been a 1.4x um, so you know we're, we're seeing a a good return on for the private investors at the time of the IPO but you know the the market right now it may not persist and and so you know making sure you're you're taking capital at appropriate levels of valuation and and you know making sure that you're getting that right kind of of syndicate around to support you in an IPO I think that's that's a very important uh, step along the way um, and obviously you know, the building the company in the right way is is important as well making sure that you are. You aren't building a company to go public, but you're building a company for long-term success and and investing in the right areas. Um, make sure you have quality clinical program in place and and the right people to manage that. Making sure that you have defined your market opportunity and can ex- articulate you know what your position within that that market will be if you're approved. Um, all of those are important to do from essentially founding the company. And and so, you know, I think some of the pitfalls that we've seen in the past have been failure to to really build the company along those lines from day one. Great point. And Jason, are there things along the path to IPO that you see kind of off in the distance and, and want folks to be more mindful of so that we can dodge these these problems? I think one key issue that companies should think more about as they develop their clinical plan is, is IPO timing. And by that, I'm less focused on the macro environment because there'll always be volatility and challenges there that you have to navigate around. But I think identifying the right time to IPO based on your business model, your clinical or preclinical plan is really important. And where we've seen companies get into trouble in the past is in situations perhaps where companies just didn't have enough catalysts in the relatively near-term post-IPO to get investors interested. One of the concerns investors have, particularly for those companies that are at a clinical stage, is the cadence of news flow and potential value inflection points after the IPO. And so thinking through how the investor will look at the opportunity to make money in the public market post-IPO as the company continues to prosecute the pipeline is really important. And that's not to say that companies can't go public very early in their life cycle, i.e. preclinical. 
uh, which we've seen in many cases this year, or that late-stage companies can't get successful IPOs done uh, if they don't have a relatively near-term binary event. But just thinking through how you're going to tell the story post-IPO and what investors are looking for, I think, is critically important. And making sure that you've got a really tight story around the use of proceeds uh, and how those proceeds are going to drive value for investors in the public market is really important. And we've seen companies at times get hung up on that issue, whether it's just the, the quantum of capital they're looking to raise, how they're going to deploy it, and how that's going to translate to value for investors in the short and intermediate term. You highlight a real problem uh, when you start to talk about news flow. For example, we look at some of the Alzheimer's companies that are doing great work. But when you think about an Alzheimer's trial, like the length of time that it takes to get to meaningful milestones, you really end up in this quandary of like, well, how am I going to deliver something to keep the market engaged while I'm pursuing like a three-year trial? So now you're in this thing of I've got to create additional indications to pursue that are going to generate news along the way which consumes resources, uh, people's time, it consumes dollars, but you're almost left without a choice but to do that because you will have to provide some kind of significant news along the way. I mean, the market won't put money into an IPO and wait for three years to get a result. I find that challenge sometimes difficult for companies because you know you, you're, it takes you off the path of what your core indication is solely because you've got to be in a position to deliver news along the way. One other potential pitfall I think we've encountered is the challenge around BD and and balancing the desire for partnerships and external validation with uh, retaining upside and ultimately value for equity investors. So interested in your perspectives on how you advise clients to think about that issue. It it can definitely be a tough decision about when and if to partner, uh, particularly when you're talking about something that is a, a really critical component of the value of a a given company. So if you're looking at a lead asset and you you are thinking about partnering that with Big Pharma and giving away a substantial portion of the rights, um, that can be viewed negatively by IPO investors because they're looking at this on a risk-reward basis. You're you're de-risking it somewhat from the capital side and and, you're you're suggesting that a big partner has has seen value in this program and and therefore it provides that validation, but you're also taking away a substantial portion of the upside. One of the things that we have seen companies do is is maybe a geographic deal. Uh, So you partner in in geographies where you're really not going to market the program. Um, Typically, you'll see that happening more I would say post proof of concept data as opposed to early in the in the life cycle of a program, but that's one way to uh, ma- maintain a significant amount of upside while also getting some of that validation. Again, it's it's that delicate balance of validation uh, versus not giving away the entire shop. I've certainly seen clients be very hesitant to partner anything um, because they they just view their their platform as so proprietary they really don't want to. They think the value is going to really accrue to them as they they get more and more data, and, and yeah, that that's certainly been a a philosophy that has been supported by investors over the years. They even even partnerships for earlier stage programs, um, you know, they you know, they can view that as I wouldn't say negative, but not not meaningful um, in terms of how they think about the value of a company. And so, if you partner early, you know, you're getting some capital, you're getting the opportunity to advance more programs and diversify the, the clinical story. 
but you're really not gonna get a lot of credit for that from investors necessarily. So recognizing that there are these challenges uh, with doing an IPO, should companies be thinking about alternatives? Are there ways to you know, get the ultimate goal achieved to drive your drug forward? Maybe perhaps I'll turn that to you know, Jason to start and share some thoughts around what are some alternatives? There certainly are alternatives, Noel. I think the IPO path will be uh, the most popular and will continue to, to be so for those companies that are well-positioned in biotech, but but certainly I think there are perhaps three three other potential paths, two of which I think are quite viable, the third still evolving and probably less applicable, uh, those being uh, a potential SPAC transaction, uh, a reverse merger into a public company, often a shell, uh, and then last, the direct listing, which again, I think won't make sense for most uh, biotech companies for reasons I can discuss at a high level. But I think the SPAC alternative is the one that is perhaps the most interesting uh, and, and, and topical given the explosion in that market. And we've seen roughly $10 billion of, of fresh back capital raised a month for each of the last four months. And really over the past year, we've seen uh, a tremendous amount of capital raised. Uh, those, those entities are, are targeting largely like private companies and are increasingly turning their focus to, to healthcare and to life sciences. So while there are generalist stacks, there are also those that are focused on life sciences with sponsors, sponsors that are experts in the sector. And there are some clear um, potential advantages around uh, a SPAC transaction given uh, the, the path to market, um, you know, the opportunity to avoid the conventional, traditional IPO process. Um, there's still a need perhaps to raise capital and, and transition the investor base. So. Uh, it's not without some friction costs, but again, given the amount of capital available uh, and the quality of the backing of some of these stacks, I think that's a, a real potential opportunity in select situations. Um, I'll let Tim talk more about the reverse merger path, but I think that's still clearly an option. I think the key there, uh, much as it is with the stack, is ensuring that on a pro forma basis, you're positioning the company for success. And by that, I mean attracting the right investors and promoting uh, enough liquidity in the public market so that uh, the currency is actually valuable and one that uh, is liquid enough for investors to, to, to own and move in and out of. And then lastly, the direct listing. That's been, frankly, uh, uh, a topic that's, that's focused on technology companies to date. Uh, I think it would be uh, only the, the rare unicorn biotech company that had a broad enough investor base um, and you know, potentially didn't need capital in the very short term uh, that would consider a direct listing. I think that works best for, for larger, profitable companies that have broad shareholder bases, um, clearly established valuations in the private market with some liquidity there as well. But it is a topic that we hear more about from clients, and there have been a number of high-profile recent transactions, including uh, Palantir. But again, I think of those three options, the SPAC is probably the most interesting for most of the clients we talk to. Tim, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, SPACs are, uh, in general, nothing new. They've been around for a while. But like you said, the the SPAC market in, in biopharma is significantly more active than it's ever been. And and there are a number of, of SPACs out there seeking acquisition targets. So we've heard anecdotally um, 
that there are some pretty lofty valuations floated for uh, the private company on the private company valuation side. So, you know, it's, it can look very attractive. Um, I think, you know, there's always the question with both a SPAC transaction or a reverse merger of sponsorship on the sell side. And are you going to get the, the analyst attention, um, the aftermarket support that, that public companies need for long-term success? Um, but yeah, I think it's, they're, they're increasingly viable on the SPAC side and, and reverse mergers have been around for a while and, and there continues to be reasonable deal flow there. Obviously, you know, the, the, is, you know, those are predicated on companies failing. And despite our comments about high quality companies going public, there will be failures and there will be uh, new reverse merger opportunities cropping up on a monthly basis, most likely. I guess the one alternative we haven't covered is the option to just remain private. I mean, sometimes I say to clients when they come in the door and talk about, well, we want to go public, you know, I'll ask them what it is that you want the company to be in five to 10 years, you know, because sometimes people have a very short, you know, short term game plan, right? We want to get it to phase, you know, get through proof of concept, and then we'll probably get acquired. And that whole timeline is probably 12 months. And to those folks, I would say, well, if that's the case, why would you go through the dilution of the process if you could just raise that privately, right? Because, you know, that's probably perhaps the one instance where it makes less sense to dilute yourself. Um, and more importantly, I would say uh, than the dilution is the ability to control the valuation at the time of getting taken out. When you're public, your value is whatever is showing on Yahoo Finance as your market cap. And as we've seen from M&A activity, you know, most acquirers are hard pressed to pay more than 100% premium on what you're trading at. So if one feels that their value would be far greater than what they would initially be trading at, they may want to consider staying private so that when the suitor does come around to buy the company, the, the value is set by those that are selling. Now, I say this all just to have people think about, is going public at all the right move, you know, if I do plan to sell the company in the near term? I think that's a good point, Noel. You know, not every company needs to go public. Um, and, you know, I certainly think that, you know, companies should be listening to advisors that are going to give advice in the best interest of the company and their investors and, and all the stakeholders. Uh, so with that in mind, maybe it's a good time to think about, you know, what companies should be looking for in terms of, of building a syndicate of banks to advise them on going public and service underwriters on the IPO. Uh, maybe we could stay with you and just you know, get your thoughts on what you see um, different categories of banks providing in terms of, of value to a syndicate and, and how companies should think about building an appropriate syndicate for an IPO. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I, I, I like the way that you teed that up in you know, the company sort of building this team around them. So I think the thing that has to govern people in their syndicate selection is who is genuinely going to provide the right advice for my company. Um, okay, there's going to be some consideration for, you know, brand. I think there, there still is, you know, in this industry, um, a lot of favoritism to brand because, you know, people can market off that to some extent. But I think as, as a management and a board, you really got to think about 
what are each of these banks providing me with? People will pick one bulge bracket because, you know, they want to have that sort of branding that we got the interest of these, you know, large global banks. And that's that makes sense. And then sometimes there's um, some favor directed towards the boutique specialist firms because, you know, they've got um, some unique angles with some of the biotech uh, specialist funds and um, you want to have some of that around you. I think beyond that, you also want to have folks who just genuinely are providing advice to get the right process for you, to get the right thing done. And sometimes that's no deal. It may be the wrong timing. It may be the wrong valuation. Um, There may be something else we think you need to do. You need to work with people who are comfortable saying uncomfortable things to you. Surrounding yourself with yes banks doesn't achieve your goals. I think different firms can can complement each other in in you know in very different ways and and you know I think that what you're looking for is is that kind of complementarity across your syndicate where you're getting well-rounded coverage, um, you're getting analysts that are supportive of you longer term. Um, and, and also complementary distribution capabilities. Um, I don't know, Jason, if you could talk a little bit about some of you know, your views on, on what's important in selecting a syndicate as well. I think you touched on the point I'd really want to amplify, which is when you select a syndicate, and you know, if I were sitting in, in the shoes of a management team thinking about allocating, let's say, three or four or even five slots, depending on the size of the IPO, it's really about finding banks that can work well together, but also that have somewhat different skill sets and a different approach to try to get the best of all worlds. So it might be that one firm brings a really strong research analyst with a focus in a particular therapeutic area or knowledge of of comparable companies. It might be another firm that brings a particular strength around investor targeting, whether that be geography, investor type, makeup, uh, retail institutional, uh, it might be a firm that brings brand to the table or deal flow. I think you can find uh, with three or four or five slots uh, a group that's particularly well-rounded. And then lastly, I think the key piece is the attention you're going to get in the aftermarket. And those firms have a track record of supporting their clients, both as far as uh, you know, research support, which again is out of uh, the investment banker's control, but certainly a, a part of the firm. And a part of the calculus in in selecting and partnering with investment banks. Um, Trading and liquidity support, um, aftermarket, non-deal roadshow activity, conferences, et cetera. There's really a kind of broad value proposition post-deal that's really important. And so I think evaluating all those criteria, finding a a group that has a diversified skill set is most important in my mind. You know, I think that's a great point for us to end on. Tim, Jason, thank you for all your insights on today's IPO markets. What else does 2020 have in store for the biotech industry? We'll be keeping track right here on Pathfinders. Until our next episode, thank you for joining us. As always, if there are any areas that we discuss that you'd like more information on, please don't hesitate to contact us directly for a more in-depth discussion or visit our website for further insights. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives. For disclosures, please visit www.rbccm.com disclosure.